The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! co-host james kaminsky and james you sound very evil tonight and i i can't help but notice that you're looking very your rosacea has really it started acting up um you're looking a little red in the cheek area now actually not (laughs) (laughs) this is an audio medium but you cannot see that i am currently spinning my head around 360 it's very frightening It looks like your pitchfork collection has grown significantly since last we spoke in that you have now a pitchfork. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you've noticed my collection has grown. It's been, you know, I don't collect for myself so much as I collect for others to see, you know. It's nice. James, I'm going to have to go ahead and ask you to get out from in front of me and and go ahead and just get, get behind. Because this week, we are going to be doing... An album analysis and review of my favorite album, Get Behind Me, Satan, by the White Stripes. Uh, yeah, I love that album. I love it, I love it, I love it. It's my very favorite, and it's the definitely the weirdest Jack White album, I think, That's objectively. Right. Get on uh, back think- there, Satan. You get on behind me. Yeah, uh, well... <laughs> Okay. Um, I think I might love it because it stands out as such a drastically different record from everything else they were doing at the time. We had, it's just, it's light years. And I think the divorce had a lot to do with it. And a lot of things, I think a lot of things made it what it is. And we'll kind of get into that as we go. But we're going to go through an analysis. Uh, We're going to go track by track. We're going to review it. We're going to get into a little bit of background here. Uh, There's going to be lots going on this episode. And James, it looks like I've got something wrong and you've got your finger up and you're ready to tell me what it is. It wasn't a divorce. It was a breakup. After our Would You Fight For My Love episode, I really started to think of this album more as the Meg split. I feel like there were rebounds and he was doing those and those I, I think for years we blamed this on Zellweger and etc. 
um, the bacteria Marcy. Yeah, we blamed it on a lot of girlfriends, but I really think this is Jack unpacking the Meg marriage. But we'll get to that as we go. And maybe, you know what? Honestly, I don't know a lot about that. I I am reacting. What really turned it for me was when we were talking about the nurse and you mentioned that that song, Jack had mentioned that that song was about this marriage breaking up. And it really changed a lot of how I felt about what the songs are. Because we've all got, you know, breakups are one thing. But I feel like a divorce is a giant thing that Jack was too kind of famous and busy to properly deal with for a little while, and then finally kind of got around to with this record. All right, Paul. Well, let's. I could be wrong. We have this whole I, episode yeah. in front of us and Satan behind us. Uh, yeah. Let's get to it. You know? Ah, but before we do. I don't only smell the delicious bacon cooking in my kitchen, which I really want to be eating right now. <laughs> I also think I smell a fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact is the knowledge. I'm the fact man. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to get to say, I think I smell a scat. And I was like, nope, you don't want to smell no scat. Paul, do you want to tell us what's fact you're smelling? I do, I do. Today's fact comes inspired by going back to Cali Durga. We still well, don't have a good... We'll make it work. We don't have a good nickname for her. The Great Cali. The Great Cali comes from Cali Durga, and it's in reference to our New Year's episode where we talked a lot about Margot Price. That was episode 13. And we, we talked a little bit about the song One More Cup of Coffee. That's the Dylan cover that actually Margot discussed when she first met Jack White on the streets of Nashville mm. back in 2007. And uh, Callie had asked a little bit about that performance, so I thought I would just elaborate. The performance I was referencing, mainly, so Margot sang this for many, many years, and I guess she had continued to do it to this day because the performance I sampled from in that episode came from a performance on May 23rd, 2016 at the Borderline in London where she played it. And Margot was was touring in England as promotion for her debut album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, Mm -hmm. which is available now. And if you haven't checked it out, you should absolutely freaking check that out. But the performance on YouTube, which is a really, really cool performance, comes courtesy of Nashville Over Here, which is a really neat non-commercial online site that sort of promotes country music and the like in the uk so that's really really cool and if you want to i implore everyone go and check out this performance because it's fantastic and it's from her most current tour and oh i love marco price she's just so wonderful uh yeah she's adorable and wonderful and perfect and a good singer yes and a very good singer and so that is going to be the fact we're smelling today i think i smelled it james when i reflect on that fact talking about get behind me satan here and we're just going to go through a couple of album details james we're going to go through and kind of we'll do this in chunks you know we'll talk about its release we'll talk about some background on the album as a project we'll go through and do track by track we'll do some critical response some of our response to it and then we'll kind of wrap it up from there and um and give it a rating so those sound like some pretty good chunks paul Oh, Good very chunks. chunky, very chunky. If I were a football player's mother, I would serve it to my son. <laughs> it's chock full of chunks. It's, it's a really narrow reference right there. It's, no, no, you, you, 
you hit your target market, which was me. Uh, squ- <laughs> square, s- square in the squaw, hip. Squaw in the jaw. I curd ate Camel's chunky soup before the game. So did my Terrell. And he opened the can with his bare hands. That's impossible. Are you calling me a liar? That's right. You want a piece of me? So Get Behind Me, Satan is the fifth studio album by the White Stripes. Came Woo! It came hot off the heels of 2003's Elephant, and that was, you know, I think as we've talked about, really the mainstream cementing of Jack White's stardom. I wouldn't say it was his first breakthrough, but it was certainly the thing that put him on the map. Is that fair to say? Not his first number one, but... But come on, that album is really the one that people know. Like, Seven Nation Army is the one that stuck, you know? Yeah, that's the one that broke through to get everybody else on board. You got music fans on board already with White Blood Cells. Elephant got everybody That's a great way to put it, yes. Absolutely. Fabulous way to put it. And some background here, which we won't really touch on too much, but he's still living in Detroit. He has done Cold Mountain. He has His marriage to Meg has ended. He has gone through a couple of different long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. He is feeling a lot of unrest with stardom. Mm-hmm. He's adjusting to life as a celebrity in the public eye, and a lot of that angst really kind of plays into this record, which we will get into a little bit, but that's kind of the atmosphere we're coming from here. So when he and Meg went back into the studio, that's really the starting point that they were starting at. So, you know, I've heard people call this one kind of the offbeat one or the oddball, the bridge album, but... I think it's just because he was in an offbeat, oddball kind of place. And then after this comes Icky Thump, which is a little bit more of a return to elephant-style panache with a lot of flavors of what was about to come in it. Yeah. With some highs comes some lows. And not to say that Get Behind Me Satan is a low point, but I'd say it definitely has more sadness and subtlety to it than Elephant did. And so I think it's a it's a definite curve going from the like a crescendo up to elephant and then it goes back down to something a little lower and something a little more mindful sure 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 yeah yeah i mean certainly it is a low emotionally speaking with a few notable standouts but we'll get to all that i've said it before in the intro i will say it again even though this is an emotional low it's my favorite white stripes album partly because it stands out a million miles away Mm. and i think it's more successful oddball album than like a zeppelin three if you're gonna equate it in led zeppelin in terms zeppelin 3 is kind of where i would put like this is kind of his zeppelin 3 that was a very slow acoustic album with a lot of like country stomp that people really weren't expecting from them and then they kind of returned to what they were known for with zeppelin 4 so well with a cool cover at least you get rotated i love zeppelin 3 <laughs> for different reasons i mean i mean we won't get into zeppelin this is not a zeppelin podcast all this podcast is thinking like a led zeppelin <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Uh, Some more background here. It was released on June 7th. It was a summer release in 2005. So just to give you an idea of where the rest of popular music is at, the week this song was released, this is the Billboard Top 10. We have We Belong Belong Together by Mariah Carey, number one. We have... (laughs) Number two is Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani. A real real Delta Blues hit there. Uh, Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, a song called Oh by Ciara. I don't know what that is. Just a little bit by 50 Cent. We don't have Don't Funk With My Heart, with spelled with a P-H, and mm. that is by the Black Eyed Peas. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, we have Hate It or Love It by The Game featuring 50 Cent. Hate It. Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson. 
Behind These Hazel Eyes, also by Kelly Clarkson for some reason. Uh, we have Switch by Will Smith, and to round it out, Lonely No More by Sir Rob Thomas. Holy shit. I mean, the first, the first rock and roll esque entry into this chart is number twelve, Mister Brightside by the Killers. Okay, and then we got like three doors down at fifteen. Gorillas is kind of legit. I mean, there's, but it's okay. So this, this is the atmosphere we're heading into. Like Beverly Hills by Weezer was twenty one. Oh yeah, this is that era of music. <laughs> yes. All right. So that's what Jack White is about to throw a marimba at. <laughs> <laughs> He said, hey, 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 world, suck on this marimba. (laughs) Guess what? It's going to be on every goddamn song. You guys like Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson? How about some sick xylophone beats? Hey, Sweat. No, No, I will not go with you to the candy shop. (laughs) Sweat. Sweat, where's my marimba? It was the only Jack White record not to receive a commercial release on vinyl. There were only 600 promotional copies being released originally, which is, again, another thing that makes this one kind of an odd duck. It mm-hmm. it did get promotional copies, and those were releases I just said, but really the first commercial release wasn't until 2015, which we'll kind of get to, which is really cool, in which, James, you and Ariel got me for my 30th birthday, I think, actually. Yay. Uh, in fact, for 10 years, it was the only album by the White Stripes not commercially released in vinyl format. The White Stripes had had intended to re-record Get Behind Me Satan entirely as a live album in New Zealand. Whoa, they wanted to take it the Hobbit route. Supposedly. Uh, if anyone can verify this, please do. I was pulling from a lot of different sources. I could not verify this Wikipedia entry, but please, somebody chime in here. However, the studio that they were planning to record it in no longer had the recording equipment to make it possible. So that's why that didn't happen. There are only a few copies of the album uh, on vinyl that were given exclusively to music journalists to review. So for whatever reason, music journalists were still getting vinyl review copies, which seems kind of like the opposite of what you would want to send someone who has to listen to something instantly, but okay. So would you have to send away for that or would you just get them in the mail? Like I feel like (sighs) if I was, I could call myself a, like a comics journalist, if you work for a specific company, you could just say, I want this, and they'll send it to you. You get part of a press list. I, I'm sure it was associated with the V2 press list. Yeah, like in comics, if you want to send out a review copy or something, you have a contacts list you've been building kind of thing. So mm. I would doubt that they would reach out to them about it, but I don't know that for sure. <laughs> so this is in a transitionary period for Jack in the labels department, because this is not pre-Third Man. This is pre-Third Man moving to Warner Brothers. So this is is third man set up in its original form at v2 in association also with like xl did some stuff with them Mm -hmm. jack would then later sell third man to warner brothers and make like a bunch of millions of dollars (laughs) so that's the transition there but anyway somewhere along the way a vinyl release of this was never sort of crafted uh, is, is what I'm getting at here. So we're just going to go through a couple of labels that did issue this thing. The first being uh, V2 really was a champion of Jack's stuff. Obviously, that's the Virgin record label that soon sort of folded and caused Jack to sort of look elsewhere. 
Again, I'd really like to verify a lot of that stuff in an episode. I'd love to do just like how Third Man as a label was set up one of these days, but we'll get to that. So they released it on CD in the US, Asia, and Japan. There was a CD-DVD limited edition combo in Japan, and it was reissued by V2 in 2008 in Japan, mm. too, which is really weird. And, you know, James, I had a few things to uh, to pick through here when I was down upon my hands and knees uh, researching this show. My apartment is in front of a tree, and, and I, I guess mm-hmm. you could... I don't know what kind of wood my... my uh, tree outside my apartment is it could be poplar trees i was digging through some sticks and stones and in there i i found some found some a couple things james you might have you might have found some bones Paul. yeah i found some rags and bones so james would you like to tell the good people what a rag and bone is of course paul a rag and bone is one of those odd surreal, strange, or just unplaceable facts that we find <laughs> along the way yeah. when, while researching these topics. And so we need to find a home, Paul, for these facts. We need to find a home for them because they are great. I am great. Yeah. They are great. You are great. I am great. They are great. They are, they are odd. They're strange. They're funny. And they're just things we like. So uh, we put them here in this. They give, we give them a home here in this segment. That we like to call a rag and bone. So this week's rag and bone is oh, it's a hole I fell into, which I am going to do an abridged version of. But when research, okay. when researching the released versions of "Get Behind Me, Satan," I found that this album was actually released commercially available on cassette tape. What in Malaysia and Indonesia by V Two? In 2005. (laughs) What? (laughs) Somebody was like, hey, listen, (laughs) that iPod's really nice or whatever, (laughs) but I'm trying to bust this cassette in your ear. (laughs) No, no, I I get it. The the Indonesian trucker market (laughs) is very large. Not to offend any Indonesian or Malaysian uh, listeners that we may or may not or likely not have. Uh, we are. This is not a commentary on Malaysia or Indonesia. This is a commentary on. They were putting cassettes out in 2005. So let's say a, a trucker walks into a gas station in Indonesia and has he's cycling through his local 7-Eleven's cassette tape rack, and yeah. you know he's got to find good music, Paul. And you know yes. he's cycling yeah. through the Kenny Chesneys. Oh, he's, you, you said Kenny Chesneys. I was literally about to say Kenny Loggins. <laughs> we were both here on the he's, Kenny. Right on the Ken, We're on the Kenny mind frame here. You're cycling through that. You're cycling through your. Alanis Morissette's, uh, you know, isn't it ironic that you might find a newly released... Yeah, isn't it mar- ironic you might find Jack White's weird marimba in your Malaysian gas station? When you Google cassette tapes, the first thing that comes up, it says until 2005, cassettes remained the dominant medium for purchasing and listening to music in some developing countries. Which, wow. until the developing countries part, I was like, factually inaccurate <laughs> patently untrue google you are wrong but okay developing countries i get it wait 2005 does that mean jack white was on the tail end of that too he was just like i did it i made the last good cassette tape everybody <laughs> stop what you're doing we no longer need to make the wait wait we can squeeze in the kelly clarkson she seems very kelly clarkson since you've been gone 
we we've added Kelly Clarkson. Not to crap all over antiquated technology as James and I go out and buy our uh, record albums. <laughs> uh, I know they're kind of making like they're selling at Urban Outfitters now, and I'm yeah. Let's not get into these arguments, Paul. People get way too not only hostile but okay. definitely. All right. Well, okay. People like what they like. No tea, no shade, no pink lemonade. We don't cast judgment on cassettes, obviously, but we found it kind of odd. Just because I don't even, like, even at record stores, I don't really see those. Anyway, so looking into this, in 2001, cassettes accounted for only 4% of all music sold, which still seems crazy high to me. But It's a little high, yeah. It's 2001, fine. Sales of pre-recorded music cassettes in the U.S. dropped from 442 million in 1990 to 274,000 by 2007. Oh, that's a marked difference. Yeah, yeah. What I find more shocking is that 274,000 people said yes to cassette tapes in 2007. (laughs) Seems a little crazy. Another record low was registered in 2009 with only 34,000 cassettes sold. Again, I say to you. That's a little that's a little high. That's a little high. Like iPhones were out, right? Or at least we're about to come out. All right, l- let's let's put it in this term though, Paul. That's less than some stadium capacities. Okay. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, the last new car with an available cassette player was a 2010 Lexus SC430. Again, seems kind of late in the game. The cherry on the cake for this Dragon Bone. The form has its devotees. Eminem has made his favor known. So that was that's the Dragon Bone for this week, and I find it shocking. As should you. <laughs> we get to a couple more labels that uh, helped release this album. XL, which we talked about earlier, they released a CD in Europe, Scandinavia, the Ukraine, Australia, New Zealand, and the Czech Republic, South Africa, Mexico, Germany, Russia. And that just gives you a flavor of just how wide his reach was at this point. You know, Elephant and Blood Cells, very successful, allowed him to go to a lot of places, reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of random small labels released it in other places moon records released it in the ukraine something called some records released in argentina soyuz records released it also in russia equinox music put it out in turkey east records also in russia warner brothers also put out a version of it in 2005 in russia and then also re-released it in the u.s and canada in 2008 when it got reissued so that is probably in conjunction to that purchasing agreement you know Hmm. of of third man something called playground music scandinavia released it in denmark and then third man records in its infancy released it on cd in the u.s and canada in 2008 and on vinyl as we talked about the special edition Hmm. yeah the publishing is under peppermint stripe music that goes back to what we were talking about the other day he's got third string tunes and peppermint stripe music those are his two sort of publishing portfolios Uh, the record was recorded in third man studio detroit michigan in february of 2005 it was mixed at ardent studios in memphis we talked about ardent studios a little bit on the would you fight for my love episode where we detailed james's utter contempt for the blue orchid single and those were all (laughs) mixed at ardent studios as well it was mastered at master disc (laughs) which sounds like an x-men villain uh (laughs) by a guy named uh howie weinberg it is i master disc (laughs) what is that you say a marimba 
Somebody is coming at me with a frisbee? Not in my domain. For I am the master of discs. This place, I also fell into a little hole here with Master Disc. It looks like Mm -hmm. they did a lot of mastering over the years. Franz Ferdinand, uh, Mm. Gorillaz, Madonna, and Coheed and Cambria were amongst others utilizing them at this time. That sounds about uh, the correct list to to say for 2005. We're saying a lot of flashback names this episode. So uh, who worked on the album? We have Jack obviously wrote every song and plays guitar, piano, tambourine, mandolin, marimba, and sings. We have Meg on drums, percussion, timpani, and also vocals. And the only other artist, James, can you tell me the only other artist that worked on Get Behind Me Satan, the album proper, not the B-sides? It's not Patrick Keeler because he was on the B-sides. Nope. Um, It's an odd one, although it's not ultra surprising. Meg White. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's Meg White again. <laughs> it's Meg twice. Spike, you finished with my robot? She's Meg squared. <laughs> no, not square, Meg. That's ridiculous, Spike. Get that out of my face. It's a monstrosity. Give it to me. No. Get it away. <laughs> or not. Eddie Gillis. Oh, Jack's brother. Jack's brother plays percussion on the denial twist. Huh. It's interesting. Yeah. Jack produced and mixed it all. Tech credits go to uh, Engineering by Adam Hill, sequenced by Roger Leon, which is odd because I would have thought Jack would have sequenced this himself. Although maybe it was, maybe by sequencing, they just mean sort of the tracks going in and out to one another. Who knows? I don't know. And then it was recorded by Matthew Kettle. So James, let's talk a little bit about the design sensibilities for Get Behind Me, Satan. Ooh. So James, the cover to this one is really cool. <laughs> it's got uh, it's got Jack and Meg on it. They're sort of they're facing back to back. They are holding out a hand behind them and sort of touching one another. Right. Describe the cover to the people, Paul. It's a good cover. <laughs> no, it's got uh, it's it's got Jack. It's got Meg. They're. <laughs> It's got their their name. It's got the title of the album. They're touching hands and they're touching fingers, just like in the famous uh, Michelangelo painting, the spark of life out, out of the Sistine Chapel's mural. They're doing that kind of finger-to-finger sparky touch. Yeah. Meg is holding an apple, a white apple, mm-hmm. which is significant because it is the it symbolizes, you know, kind of the fruit of knowledge that Eve had eaten in Genesis. And then Jack, I just want to thank uh, my wife for most of that information uh, way in, telling me that way in the past. She told me that and it blew my mind. I was like, "Oh my god, you're right." So, <laughs> it's all her. Jack is holding something, but No one, at least as of what I was able to find, has ever been able to properly identify the white object Jack is holding in his hand on the cover. It looks kind of spherical. It looks like a big pill, honestly, or something like that. Yeah, it looks like an egg, like a weirdly shaped egg to me. Yeah, I found a lot of people sort of guessing at it, but it's not really like there's nothing that is proven. So if you've heard somewhere what this is, please tell us. There's a possibility it's a Tesla coil bulb, which honestly would make sense. But again, all of this is unconfirmed and a lot of it is stuff I found on message boards. So like, don't take that as gospel at all. That's it. 
Yeah. Um, so this design was not done by the usual cast of characters. I mean, Jack obviously over the years has worked with a lot of different people, but this is not done by Rob Jones or, or our Animal Rummy or anything. This was done by a uh, design house called Art Hole Retro Graphics by a fellow named Bruce Brand, whom I reached out to for this show, but has yet to get back to me because his website is defunct, and I'm not certain he checks his Facebook messages. Oh, man. Uh, so it, it's based in the UK. It's a design house there, and uh, in London specifically, and they specialize in graphic design for musicians. So he also did a couple other things for Jack. He did the Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground single cover, the one with the piano. Mm-hmm. The Hardest Button to Button single, the one with the hand reaching down, the sort of jagged hand. He did the Seven Nation Army single, the one with the elephant. The Blue Orchid artwork, the one with the Mexican guy and the African-American lady instead of Jack and Meg, that one, the, that single. Yes, uh, I'm actually looking at it right now. Yeah, the uh, My Doorbell single, the one with Meg playing the timpani drum in the snow with the kids, who are, uh, incidentally are the same kids from the Doorbell music video. Oh, cool. The Denial Twist single where Jack runs down the raccoon in the street with a bicycle. <laughs> Oh, I love that's my favorite album cover of it's all great. time. I wasn't gonna rebuy like I sometimes I check I check the white stripe section at Amoeba whenever I'm in there just in case I see something and I was like, you know, I'm not gonna buy these singles. I have these songs already from like years ago. And then I was like, Yeah, but that's a dead raccoon and Jack White like fretting about it. So I'm <laughs> definitely buying that now. <laughs> He just was on a bike ride. (laughs) There's a custom singles box you can get, I guess, with elephants on it. White Stripes custom single box that he also did. Anyway, James, can you guess the other notable Jack White adjacent artist that Art Hole worked with? Uh, Keep in mind, they're based in London. James, I gave you a clue like I gave you a carrot so it would break your foot. Oh, was it Holly Golightly? It was Holly Golightly, yes, indeed. Oh, he worked nice. with Holly Golightly. Last little bit of that is, as we talked about in our very first episode of the podcast, the album is dedicated to Susie Lee. Nice. Yes. Yeah, we haven't talked about Susie Lee in quite a while. Susie Lee is a character Jack often refers to as a stand-in for any girl that Jack is talking about, usually. <laughs> yes, it's a character I still haven't found additional references for beyond the stuff we talked about in episode one, which was our White Stripes debut album album analysis episode. But I have since found more references to ghosts in his stuff, so we might have <laughs> to update that. We talked about that a little bit in the Halloween episode. Episode four, I believe. Jack-o'-lantern, right? (laughs) So let's do a little background here into the actual recording of this album back in February of 2005. The album was recorded in the stairway and foyer of Jack White's home. Ah, I've heard about this. Yes, Um, yes. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) I know, I thought so. I found that very interesting. Not to draw too many parallels to Led Zeppelin this episode, but Led Zeppelin famously recorded um, some albums of theirs in, I I believe it was Jimmy Page's home, could have been Robert Plant, but that's how they got the real cool John Bonham drum sounds. They set it up in the stairwell. You could hear about it and it might get loud. Uh, They they take them to that stairwell and talk about it. Yes, indeed. It might get loud, the movie starring Jimmy Page, Jack White, and The Edge. The guitar film. Yes, the guitar, that guitar film. So these are some quotes from Jack talking about this album and talking about the background. He said, The audience has changed. Hipsters are emerging. They're fickle. It's a false sense of coolness. Uh, I believe a lot of this is coming from the Charlie Rose interview he did later that year with Meg, which is a beautiful interview, by the way. You should see it. It's on YouTube. So it's fun hearing him talk about the emergence of hipsters because, yeah, that was around this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess this is when... 
Brooklyn started becoming up and coming again, and all yeah. that stuff started becoming cool. Kinda, yeah. The hip irony. Yeah, hip irony. Oh, it's it's in full swing. And hipsters, you know, are having a nice long run, because they're still out there in force today. More or less. They're becoming parents now. They're rocking man buns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he also went on to say he was... The album was inspired by a purging of frustrations, hmm. which goes back to what we, what we touched on a little bit at the at the top of this. This album had a lot to do with the environment of Detroit and how tough it was to be famous and stay in Detroit. Jack was quoted as saying, you're not really supposed to stay in your hometown. It'd be like if the Beatles stayed in Liverpool. Hmm. So, you know, ring the Beatle bell. But I get what he's saying. Time to move on. To, you're expected to move on to bigger and better things. Oh, you're in a movie? Why don't you go live in Southern California, you movie star? Yeah, um, Paul. Why don't you go live in Southern California, <laughs> you podcaster? <laughs> but, you know, people are probably super jealous. Like, I would be. Oh, yeah. You know? And uh, he, he, he continued to say different things about that. It's different. It's not like it was when you were just playing local shows. Talking about this album a little bit, he went on to say uh, the most difficult. Uh, it was the most difficult album to do. It felt like it was cursed. It took three weeks of setting things up before we could start recording, although it eventually became one of the most dear things I've ever done. This and the Loretta Lynn album are extremely close to my heart. Yeah. But it took, a, it took three weeks of setting things up before we could start recording because the machines were broken and things were wrong and all that kind of stuff and then uh it just seemed like things just weren't coming together you know it wasn't clicking like it normally had but then all of a sudden it just came right around and everything became perfect and better than i could even imagine and and closely it became one of the dearest most dearest things i've ever done all that came from the um from the Charlie Rose interview. And I'm paraphrasing some of that because I was sort of furiously typing as he was talking, but that you get the impression. Truth, you know, is a theme in this album. His search for it, his wrestling with truth, a lot of that is really prevalent in, in Satan. There is a departure from minimalism. You kind of touched on this in the Would You Fight For My Love episode, but in songs like Big Baby and Do I Hear You Calling, I Will Not Answer, he's starting to use weird vocal things and it's not just guitar vocals and drums or guitar piano and drums even though he kind of still says it is it's definitely not there are other things at play here Mm -hmm. rolling stone had to say uh, the minimalism is still there vocals marimba drums or vocals grand piano and drums or i play piano meg plays timpani and she sings it's all in threes so that's jack talking to rolling stone about the album and so i guess he's trying to justify like it's still in threes kind of thing but Right. He's dabbling. Uh, <laughs> he dabbles. He dabbles, but honestly, very soon after this, months after this album's released, he's in the studio with Brendan Benson recording Steady As She Goes and stuff. So, like, he's on that precipice of, I'm done with this yeah. hyper-minimalist thing, at least for the time being. Yeah, not done, but he's trying to... He's still ex- he's exploring. Oh, On writing the songs, again, this is via Rolling Stone, until a couple of months before Satan, I hadn't written anything in a year and a half. Whoa. We'd been touring, and I don't write on tour. I don't know if that's still true to this day, but that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. He doesn't write on tour? I feel like that might be accurate, because his Lazaretto tour lasted a long time, and we haven't gotten anything in... A long time. Meg, uh, during that Charlie Rose interview, when asked what her what song was her favorite, she said they all have their good and their bad elements. I like them differently at different times, which is one of the biggest non-answers I've ever heard. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I like them all. They're fine. What's your favorite? <laughs> they, they are. <laughs> yes. They are songs. They, <laughs> did I say it right, Jack? They are all my favorites and yeah. all my least favorites. <laughs> I give them all both one and three out of three men. To quote the neutrals from Futurama, I'm going to die. Tell my wife hello. (laughs) She did have a interesting quote when asked about Jack. She said he's putting everything out there, his heart and his soul. Look, Meg doesn't say much. That doesn't sound like too much of a profound quote when I say it. But coming from his ex-wife, bandmate, friend of over a decade... That's kind of, that means something Yeah, from her. Yeah. So James, this album has a pretty notable guest star, which has since sort of dissipated from the Jack White lore, although occasionally rears her head from time to time in places so seedy. So, so <laughs> uh, would that be Mrs. Rita Hayworth? Oh, Rita Hayworth there. I wouldn't wash her for a week. Uh, that would be all that I needed. <laughs> <laughs> so Rita Hayworth, star, celebutant. White said that Rita Hayworth became an all-encompassing metaphor for the album since she changed her last name from something that revealed her Latina heritage. It wound up being a reflection on the way celebrity was cast upon her. She wound up having to change herself for the sake of those around her. And so it was part of the metaphor for the album. So this is this is via Rolling Stone. Rita became an all-encompassing metaphor for everything I was thinking about while making the album. There was an autograph of hers. She had kissed a piece of paper, left a lip print on it, and underneath it said, my heart is in my mouth. I loved that statement and wondered why she wrote it. There was also the fact that she was Latina and had changed her name. She had become something different, morphed herself, and was trying to put something behind her. And there was the shallowness of celebrity when it's thrown upon you. It was helpful to me uh, for a long time. And then after a certain time, it became really a hindrance, you know, kind of for my career because I was made uh, as an image of a certain kind of, of, you know, that yes. particular thing that they do when they make a star, they, they're like, uh, you know, I don't want to be Gilda all my life. I mean, I, I, I feel I am an actress and I have talent and I can be, I can do many, my, many other parts. All of that was going around in these songs. What had been thrown on me, things I'd never asked for. Every song on that album is about truth. So, boy, way to lay it all on the line there, Jackie yeah. boy. That's the most I've ever heard him talk his mind and at this point in ever. I Yeah, I mean, and he was obviously trying to express himself. I have to believe he felt like kind of a caged animal. He's got a little bit of a temper, but not any more than the average guy, and he was just being heaped on with pressure, and you act out in those situations. I mean, it just happens. Right, one must cage the elephant. So then this is a really, really cute, cool follow-up to that. Uh, he wound up saying, Meg also reminds me of Rita Hayworth. Ooh. Rita Hayworth never looked at any of the photos taken of her. She didn't care what she looked like or what people thought. That's really something to be that strong. Meg's the same way. She doesn't care about photos or any of that stuff. So it sounds like he's getting kind of nostalgic here. Yeah. And it would lend itself to the album Closer, I'm Lonely But I Ain't That Lonely Yet. 
I love my sister. Lord knows how I missed her. She loves me and she knows I won't forget. And sometimes I get jealous of all her little pets. And I'm lonely, but I ain't that lonely yet. Now that we're getting into the background here, you can really start to see why these lyrics are the way they are. You know, they make it makes perfect sense. Yeah, jeez. I always kind of knew that line was about Meg to a degree, but it's it. You know, when you think about it, it's all it's touching and sad. And yeah, and Mike hates it. We love you, Mike. He had the baby. Everybody, give Mike a congratulatory. What's up? He had the baby. So there's been some retrospectives on this album. I would like to say before we get into the tracks, just because they also continue to paint the picture of what this album meant to people, not just Jack. Uh, So this is via Pitchfork, which I found weirdly insightful about all of this. Get Behind Me Satan indicated Jack was sick of the spotlight and bored with the duo's self-imposed constraints. And it was immediately hit with the, quote, transition album label. But 10 years after its June, I guess this was written in 2015. 10 years after its June 7th, 2005 release, I'd argue that rather than transitionary and uncertain, Get Behind Me Satan was a calculated sleight of hand. White obliterated his rule of three structure to distract from the personal truths he revealed on the album, in keeping with the band's tradition of misdirection. The result was arguably the most authentic White Stripes release, and the one with the most artifice, a veritable your text, for a duo that began as a married couple pretending to be siblings. Another follow-up quote. So if this was the truest version of Jack White ever put on tape, why did the most meaningful genre in his life, guitar-based blues, take a backseat to pianos, marimbas, and mandolins? Well, the White Stripes were obsessed with separating their persona from the art itself. Childlike weirdos play-acting as blues freaks. Satan flipped the script. It's flipped, baby! Script is flipped! And here we had an earnest narrator lording over unfamiliar musical constructions. He balanced the equation by making the diversions come from elsewhere, namely more garish outfits and more indulgent arrangements, which makes sense considering how they look on the album. So look at the album artwork. And notice that the only thing that isn't patently absurd and thus, quote, real is the microphone. It's a good point. He's walking around with a cane this year. Mm. He's wearing that weird hat. He grew that devil mustache, goatee thing. He's morphing himself and kind of even changing his physical appearance and the physical appearance of the band during this time period. So a lot of transition. I feel like he's kind of even disguising himself. Yeah. You know, like like you were saying, yeah, with the morphing, you know, like Rita Hayworth did, he's putting on a hat. The hat is typically something to cover yourself. He has a cane, something that would typically be used if you're hobbling. He's got the mustache, which again is a disguise. You know, people would either grow or shave off facial hair. I don't know. I feel like he's, if not comically disguised in a cartoon, uh, he is uh, using these as metaphors. Yes, and he would emerge on the other side looking kind of like we know him to look. Like, I feel like he came out of Satan, the Jack White that he would remain, in a way. So far, yeah. I mean, we've had some minor changes to his hair, mostly. But My initial impressions, just his initial impressions of this album, after having learned a little bit about it, you know, Jack had some time to process the divorce, to rebound a few times, and to grieve, maybe even miss what he had. Mm-hmm. And I think this album is partly a longing for the past while simultaneously dissecting it in a sort of nihilistic way. But I think it all turns out beautifully in the end, and once it goes through his filter actually comes out a really, really beautiful, beautiful record. It, yes. You wrote everything, every song. You write all the songs. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Inspired by the thing that inspires all songwriters, what you know, what you see, what you feel, what, this was a, what you experience. This, this new album was sort of different. I, I think it was sort of a, just sort of a purging of a lot of different sort of frustrations and 
I think a lot of things to do with the environment of Detroit and the scene we came from. We, you know, we stayed, we lived, we stayed, lived, we still live there. You know? and it's hard to do that. More piano than any White Stripes album ever, by the way, as well. Yeah, very good piano too. He he really shines with it. Yeah, so we'll just uh, talk a little bit about the album title, Get Behind Me, Satan. It's kind of a weird album title. It's a biblical quote. It's from the Bible, Matthew sixteen twenty-three. The quote from the Bible is, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Um, and so I looked up a couple interpretations of this, and the context here is that Peter was suggesting that Jesus take a course of action other than the one that he was predestined to fulfill. Jesus knew his destiny, and he knew the will of God. What Peter was suggesting was that Jesus go against the will of God. Uh, and as such, Peter's words were the words of an adversary of God, not consciously, but it was meant in an adver- adversarial sense. So Satan is an abstract term for just an obstacle or adversary. Mm. Jack is talking about frustrations on this album, roadblocks, adversaries in his own life, and this is him saying, get behind me. All the adversaries are behind him, which also feeds into some quotes I found from Rolling Stone, Jack talking about the album here. He says, Satan is the end of any unhappiness I have. Get behind me. That's it. Any troubles I have are well represented. Betrayal, loss, pain, whatever's going on in my head and life. I got the last things out on that record. I'm done. I feel much happier now than I've ever felt. I got through a lot of confusing times, and I've always done what I wanted to do no matter how bad things got. I have that freedom, and I will never take that for granted. Hmm. Um, so I found that interesting, and I never knew that about the Get Behind Me Satan title. I just thought it was one some oddball title he picked. Yeah. And on Conan O'Brien, worth worth mentioning here, when he was on Conan plugging the album, and I think he played Red Rain, which is interesting song selection. Yeah. Conan remarked on the goatee. All right, everybody, we're back. I'm sitting here with the White Stripes. Uh, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was cool. Thank very nice to have us. you back on the show. I have a... First of all, I have a, personal, a very personal question about the, uh, the beard, the little goatee, mm-hmm. which is I saw... I worked with you uh, a couple months ago, and it was shorter, and it's getting longer and more evil, I've noticed. <laughs> is this... Uh, what, you're, you're going for a specific look? What are you doing? Uh, yeah, it was just for... Um... I think we started off with, the album's called Get Behind Me, Satan. I think um, for a second there, I was supposed to be Satan and Meg was supposed to get behind me and or right, support right. me, but I couldn't, we got confused for a while. It has growth spurts, too. Right. Oh, so sometimes it just, it grows yeah, overnight a little one, bit. This is just one week. I shaved this a week ago, so. Right. Oh, oh you shaved it. It looks no, really I, good. I made that up. I oh. oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it all works. I can't grow a beard. He might as well have been named Sigmund Freud right there because wow. <laughs> obviously getting over Meg was an obstacle. So, yeah, so you can kind of hear that. All right, let's go track by track. Track by track. We got a banger of an album opener here, James. Blue Orchid. My least favorite song on this album. Because it doesn't belong on there. Because it just doesn't belong. All right, so we talked a lot about sadness here. Blue Orchid is like the opposite of that. Blue Orchid sounds like something that danced right off of Elephant. It's a a quick-paced, rock-action-packed song. I mean, it's just, it's got a lot of heavy guitar work, which 
most of this album does not have heavy electric guitar work, and this song definitely does. Got, you know, that same Seven Nation Army anthemy kind of tone and vibe to it. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. that's a good way to f- phrase it. Yeah, they're, they're akin to one another. And personally, I think he did it on purpose in that he knew that people would be buying this because they bought Elephant previously. And I think he tried to engage them at the forefront of the album, being like, here, see, this is what you want. And then got into his the rest of his... I mean, he was trying to kick in the door on this one for sure. But again, it's so disconnected from the rest of the record. I think it's a fine song. I just don't, you know, it's a weird anomaly. So this is via an interview Jack did with Fresh Air. Blue Orchid, quote, saved the record. Everything was going wrong. Everything was broken. The record was cursed. Then this riff came out of the middle of recording and turned everything around in a positive nature. The riff came along three days before we finished. So not only is he recording these songs about pain, but he's recording them evidently in pain and everything's just crumbling around him. Holy crap. I thought this was a scrap from Elephant. No, no. It came along at toward the end of the album, three days before they finished. Although they only recorded it in two weeks. So. Huh. Yeah. Weird. So this is via Stripespedia, a great White Stripes resource. It's believed by some that the song is in, is in fact about Jason Stoltzmeier from the Von Bondies, the one he had that altercation with. However, Jack has never confirmed... Uh, or denied anything in connection to that. Jack has denied that the song relates to the ending of his relationship with Renee Zellweger. You know, Jack has probably just got a lot of different Satans he's trying to get behind him here, and it doesn't necessarily relate to any particular one. So there's some interesting effects on this, like when he gets into the bridge there. They sound almost metallic and stuff. That sound is produced by two guitars playing in almost unison, and each digitally combined with their own signal an octave lower. Live, the sound is produced by a bass-rich guitar tone used in combination with a whammy pedal to create the heavily metallic-sounding breaks of the song, where he goes like, How dare you? You know that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. How old are you now? Anyway. Yes. This was very close to being a rag and bone for this show, but a rumored parody entitled Blue Organ is said to have been recorded by American parodist Weird Al Yankovic for his 12th studio album, Straight Outta Linwood. Never saw the light of day, ever. But if Weird Al sitting on a weird backlog of B-sides, which I doubt. He isn't, it isn't. Actually, today he announced his 14 LP box set in a Weird Al accordion replica. It unfolds, the accordion unfolds, and you can pull the albums out of the accordion. Wow. And uh, it's got one album that's throwaways, B-sides, and stuff that he has laying around, so... Who knows? Well, Jack and Weird Al are coffee buddies now, so if we also, see Blue Organ pop up on there, I'm going to be super stoked. Also, I believe he probably took it down or didn't record it because the title is Blue Organ. <laughs> um, organ having lots of yeah, yeah. connotations, Blue having lots of connotations with the term organ. Yeah, let's hope we just never, never see Weird Al's Blue Organ. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jack said of this song, the riff was so simple, so effective. I feel something polkaing me. <laughs> That's just Weird Al's blue organ. Have a banana. Have a whole bunch. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you have. Regular Alapalooza in here, Paul. Just eat it. Eat it. 
Anyway. Um, <laughs> the riff is simple. The riff was so... Jack said of this song, the riff was so simple, so effective. It cemented the album together. It really rescued our mentality at the time, too, because we were about ready to jack it all in. Whoa. Maybe Jack felt about this album like Mike feels about this album. I don't know. Maybe he was just like... Mis- it sounds like he was just miserable recording it, which probably fed into why it sounds so authentic. Yeah, maybe. This song is used as the theme song for the Australian radio show Will and Limo. Everybody loves Will and Limo. Yeah, used briefly in the trailer for the 2008 documentary It Might Get Loud. And Mm -hmm. this was another one close to being a rag and bone. The song can also be heard in the movie The Green Hornet, which is directed by Michael Gondry. Is it really? And I was like, Wikipedia, you are very wrong. And I IMD beat it, and he definitely directed The Green Hornet. Whoa. (laughs) So one could call The Green Hornet an extended music video for Blue Orchid. I mean, I do. It's fine. Uh, So part of the song you can also hear in a... BBC documentary called Forces of Nature, which is an interesting way. Uh, it, it went to number one as a single in Canada. Hmm. Number one. Hey. Canada went Blue Orchid number one. That's what I choose. I choose... Only if I can get it on a cassette tape, eh? <laughs> James, do you know what a Blue Orchid is? Uh, well, I believe it's some sort of flower, some sort of orchid, if you will, that's <laughs> the shade of uh, an azul. They don't exist in nature. They are white flowers that get their color from a dye used by plant breeders. The identity of the dye and the process are patented, said Ron McHatton, president of the American Orchid Society. Typical Ron McHatton (laughs) keeping his blue orchids formula secret. Blue is a color that doesn't occur naturally in orchids very often. Uh, But that would explain the lyric... It's talking about metamorphosis. It's talking about changing changing something on purpose, changing your identity on purpose. That's downright synonymous with everything Jack's talking about on this record. Let's unpack this song a bit. You've had a reaction changing you. You've had a reaction to fame, right? And you're typically a white Jack White. Orchids are white. They Boom. Boom. This is all speculation, but... Well, that's what we're here to do. We're here to speculate. Wildly. <laughs> Just throw shit at the walls. No, no, let's, let's do that. I like that as an exercise. You got a reaction. You got a reaction, didn't you? You took a white orchid. It says white orchid. I always thought he was saying brown. You took a white orchid. You took a white orchid and turned it blue. Something better than nothing. Something better than nothing. It's giving up. We all need to do something. Try keeping the truth from showing up. How dare you? How old are you now, anyway, running around as kids, as children with Meg in the White Stripes? How dare you? How old are you now, anyway? Either, well, possibly. Possibly. I feel like he could even be talking to himself, you know, how old are you now, anyway? Yeah. You know, he, he's been doing this thing where he's been doing the innocence thing, and he's like, well, you should grow up and be more than this. Uh, maybe. 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 You know, actually, I appreciate this. I wish we were fighting for love right now, because I actually appreciate the song a little bit more after <laughs> learning about it. And then the last thing, I swear it's the last thing on Blue Orchid here, but there is uh, a history of orchid symbolism in literature and mostly sex. Oh, 
over yes orchids in general stand for beauty charm elegance strength and peace in ancient greece they symbolized virility fertility and sexuality it's uh they they have a a certain symbolism for how they just leave it at that yes the word orchid is derived from the greek word orchis or testicles ah Of which the plant's roots are reminiscent. And the petals are reminiscent of others. Yes. So, that's Blue Orchid. And then we get to my favorite song on the album, one which Mike hates. Oh, I love this song. It's called The Nurse. The nurse should not be the one who puts salt in your wounds. But it's always with trust that the poison is fed with a spoon. When you're helpless with no one to turn to alone in your It is three minutes and 47 seconds of pure crazy, which I find irresistible. And it's my go-to like, all right, I got my iTunes open. What Jack White song am I listening to first? I kind of go to the nurse. Well, it's an interesting first choice. I'll give you that. I like the nurse. I don't like it as much as you do, but I definitely like it. I, I don't even. I don't even know if I could tell you why I like this song. It paints a nice atmosphere. It paints kind of like a relaxed atmosphere, and then it jostles you out of that relaxation, and then it kind of eases you back in. And I, I don't know. I, I find I. I think it's really interesting. Jack plays marimba on this song. He said in the Fresh Air interview, I wrote this song on a marimba. So he actually wrote it on a marimba. Hmm. Uh, I was looking for a xylophone and couldn't find one, so I bought a marimba. Well, Jack, that's probably the worst reason you've given yet for doing a thing, but that's fine. It's good. Yeah. You made it for a good song. Meg had a couple key quotes about her drumming on this track. Wait, wait, wait. This man is a rock star. He just came (laughs) out with Elephant. The man can't buy a xylophone (laughs) on Amazon. Amazon's a thing at this point, right? Right? I don't think so. The Amazon jungle, yes, where he would marry Karen Elson, but no, not the act. The literal Amazon is open to him. Hey, Swank, give me a xylophone. What do you? What do you mean you can't find one? What's this marimba? Oh, this sounds pretty good. I'll I'll keep this. Meg said of her drumming on this track, "quote My drumming is crazy." End quote. <laughs> well, she's not wrong. It's, it's very to the point. It's described as interludes of noise. They did those separately after the track was cut, and she said, quote, going to be hard to do this one live. Two counter rhythms going on on that song because of the marimba and the noise. There was a tape editing accident, which, James, you detailed in the Would You Fight For My Love episode, where Jack Mm -hmm. took a razor blade and cut the wrong spot in the tape. So they had to make a a cover-up on that spot. They enjoyed so much that they kept it in. That they kept it in there. Uh, Pitchfork had called this song out. The Stripes have rarely sounded scrappier, and for a while the duo get away with it. The Nurse... One of the tunes sprinkled with marimba is a haunted cryptic warning about trust. 
Just when the arrangement threatens to mellow out, Meg's drum or Jack's guitar makes quick, intrusive jabs. Boxing. Boxing. The diffuser, in talking about this, quoted an NPR interview Jack did, Truth is sort of the number one theme throughout the whole album. White told NPR ahead of the LP's release in 2005, a significant admission since it was never clear when White's lyrics were autobiographical and when they were tall tales on those first four White Stripes albums. The directness on Satan was nearly as jarring as the musical shifts. Here was Jack White chronicling the paranoid fantasies and self-consciousness stemming from his newfound fame, The Nurse Addressed Trust Issues. They called it a, quote, dissonant freakout. Don't mind if I do! Uh, And in 2007, Jack told Mojo Magazine uh, that this song is, quote, about someone I was in love with and had been in love with for over a decade. But the way you explore all these characters compels you to know yourself better. So that leads me, obviously. Yeah, no, that's some pretty darn solid conclusions there. So from there, we get to something a little bit lighter, announcing the arrival of some some welcome visitors. Mm Hmm. So who are we having over? We're going to have Swank over. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Brendan. And they might ring. Oh, it's the truth doesn't make a noise. <laughs> I, my doorbell. My doorbell. Our best bit yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about my doorbell. When you're going to ring it. When you're going to ring it. Yeah, I've been thinking about my doorbell. Oh, well. Well, with my chip with your kids is not the man. A beautiful, fun Jack Diddy with an awesome music video to boot. This one was a very mainstreamy kind of song just because it's so light. But the lyrics are super dark. He's he's singing about real loneliness here. Yeah, he's um, thinking about his doorbell and when you're going to ring it. He's just waiting. Yeah. Women and children need kisses, not the men in my life, I know. That's him saying like, no, I know. I'm, I'm taught that I don't need love and attention. It's all for others. <laughs> Take back what you said, little girl. While you're at it, take yourself back, too. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, no, I never really listened to the lyrics in depth. It, it is so light and airy and fun. I'm just like, yeah, I'm thinking about my doorbell. When are you going to ring it? He's tired of sitting there waiting, wondering what you're going to do now. What you're going to do about it? Th- this is off the dome. I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but this is dome rock. So this was released as the second single from the album on September 3rd of 2005. So long after the album was out uh the cover for the single features meg playing timpani like she does on passive manipulation along with two other girls that can also be seen spotted in the music video uh, mm. as well as the liner notes of get behind me satan apparently the music video of my doorbell was directed by the malloys who also directed videos for Def leopard the shins blink 182 and jack johnson mm. uh, jack johnson of course covering my doorbell later that year in 2005 so yeah weird coincidence there oh yeah don't seem to come around push the button and you make a sound 
don't seem to come around. You push the button and you make a sound. It features Jack and Meg performing the song for a crowd of children. It later features Jack and Meg trying to leave after the performance, although the children are so excited over them that they run after them, leading Jack to roll up one kid's arm in the car window while other kids are pulling on Meg's dress trying to get her attention. The video premiered on... All right, so I don't know if I believe this, and I don't remember where I found this fact, but the video premiered on Nickelodeon? What? On August 19th, 2005? What? And all... After an episode of Unfabulous, which Jack and Meg made a guest appearance in. What? Okay, so I said the same thing and then went to go find Unfabulous White Stripes and found nothing. I just typed in Unfabulous White Stripes. If anyone can confirm that, please put it on our Facebook wall or email us or something. Um, I really would love to know this. Uh, So, James, we're going to move on from Doorbell to Forever For Her Is Over For Me, the first piano ballad on the album, one of many. um, That Mike hate, yes. Yes, it is a relatively short song. It's it's kind of uncharacteristic, actually, to have a ballad so early on in an album, uh, let alone a White Stripes album, but uh, there it is. said via Rolling Stone, I had a conversation with someone, and I said to myself, I blew it after I got the phone. Then I started goofing around. I blew it, and if I knew what to do, then I'd do it. Hmm. You get three lines, and you know, I better go write this down. (laughs) Sometimes you find yourself going downstairs and writing a song, even though you want to go to bed. It's out of control. (laughs) Which I find really cool. And plays into my working theory that that song is about an argument um, with somebody. Yeah. He said conversation, but it sounds an awful lot like an argument. You know, it sounds very defensive. It's good for you. It's good for you. (laughs) All right. Anyway, continue. Sorry. Uh, That's all I got. That's all I got forever for her. It's a good song. I like the song. I get it confused often with White Moon. I think you brought up the comparison in our last episode in that it's, it's a slow, touching song, and they both are pretty sad and... Yeah. They're both pretty sad, and we all went home happy. And now we're going to kick it to our third woman for this week. Hey, Welcome to our third woman for this week, Kate McCoy. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited. How's it going? How are you? Going well, going well. Just enjoying a Martin Luther King Day, having the day off. And no complaints. Oh. Day off's nice. Very nice. Oh, yeah. James, how's your day off going? Oh, Paul, <laughs> Paul I hate you. Uh, well, I took my day off, and you know what? I, I thought it would be nice if I just drove an hour and a half to my uh, place of employment just to relax and kick back and, 
you know, do actual work. (laughs) Kate, you've been a listener to the show for a little while. You've been interacting with us on social media. We very much appreciate that. Thank you very much. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became a fan of Jack and how you got involved in the fan community? Sure. So I actually heard, I have a wonderful high school best friend who was always ahead of his time and always introducing me to great music um, early on. And so he had actually given me a tape of white blood cells, um, like a mixed, a mixed, I guess it was a mixed CD that he had burned um, and he gave it to me. And so I actually heard the white stripes, I guess in maybe like 2002. And then of course, 2003, they released elephant. And by that point I was hooked. Um, Sometime, sometime later got involved in some of the fan communities and, and kind of started, you know, collecting records here and there. And then, I guess, you know, kind of with the evolution of social media, really got more involved and started participating. I live in Nashville, so it's easy for me to participate mm. in a lot of events because I'm yeah. right here at, you know, at the brick and mortar Third Man Records. We're so. both insanely jealous of this fact. Yes. Very, very jealous. <laughs> um. I'm not going to complain. Like, I re- there's no complaints for me ever. I think they do so much, you know, cool stuff. They have cool in-stores. They're constantly introducing yeah. us to new music. And it's photography, books now. They're just they're just kind of ever expanding and it's just a real gift to live here for that. Uh, my one big fear is when we actually get there, which eventually we'll visit Third Man Records, but when we actually get there, if we were to do our infamous Swank bit, Swank might actually answer and uh, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. No. Uh, if Swank actually answered back, I'm not sure exactly what I would do. I'd probably like run, I think, <laughs> would probably be... <laughs> Like, I have seen him. I got to go on a special behind-the-scenes tour of Third Man Records last year, courtesy of what? some... Yes, courtesy of some listeners to your show. Shane Devon had won yeah. a behind-the-scenes tour of Third Man Records and could take six guests. So Whoa. the day comes. It's like February 2nd or, or something early February of last year. It's a snow day for me, so I have the day off. Mm-hmm. And Shane comes down with a horrible like case of tonsillitis and strep throat and he can't make it but he's invited all these people who can and they actually have an additional they have an additional two spaces and so I get to come and an- and another friend wow. Tom Needham gets to come and we actually get to walk with Ben Blackwell through the what? through the back and all around we get to go into the vault of Third Man Records oh man and it was just wow. a great experience but Swank was there we were standing by his office door, and he yelled at us to get the <laughs> hell away from it. And we all beelined out of the way as quickly as possible. For what I hear, he can be a curmudgeon. That, I think that's his <laughs> reputation, but everyone else says that he's... Once you get to know him, I think that he's a real sweetheart. That's, that's my understanding. Don't, don't hold me wow. to that. I wouldn't call Swank a sweetheart to his face, but... <laughs> well, um, Mr. Swank, if we ever get to know you... Uh, which I hope we do. I hope we have never offended you in any way, shape, or form. I know they do, Third Man does a lot of interactive stuff with the community. You know, there was like that fall festival they did last year and some stuff like that. So is it easy to find yourself getting involved in that stuff or are tickets hard to come by? Like, how does that work, you know? So a lot of their stuff is like that fall festival was really, I think that there was like an admission price, but it was open to the public. And I don't know that there was a cap because it was outside. So um, so that was easy to get involved with. What I find 
most difficult is a lot of times they'll be doing something like during the day and I'll think, yeah, can I, should I call in sick? You know, like, like what's the right thing? What's the right thing to do here? But, um, but they have, they have so many, you know, even tonight I saw that they are, somebody's DJing on top of a hotel, a new hotel that's downtown. I think maybe, maybe one of the Benz is DJing on top of, it's the Thompson Hotel in downtown Nashville. It's just opened and they're doing like a rooftop set. And, you know, that's, it's so, it's a work night for me, but it's really tempting to just get in the car and go down there. Yes. Oh. Uh, the correct answer oh. is yes. You should uh, take a sick day yeah. and do that. And I think they just had like a Ranch Ghost did a show there. Yes, a couple of days in ago. an in store on Friday. Yes, they were there on Friday. I did not. I didn't get to go, but I, but you know, there's so many of those. I have been to one of their in stores, and they're great. I mean, and they just pack you in. When you walk into Third Man Records, the storefront itself, what is the experience like? Well, it's so it's bigger than it used to be. So you used to walk in, okay. and you're really just kind of standing in a room that. It's really not even as big as a living room, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. okay. like a half of a living room or like maybe like a long kitchen. Sure, sure. But they've expanded. They knocked out a wall and they did some expansion. But it's still a small place like that you're actually in with the merchandise and the records. But they use the space really well. Yeah. I mean, it's just decorated so well. You can tell that I think that probably Jack has a hand in all of it. The paint, the colors, they just work together well. There's rugs on the floor. It's... I always sort of got the impression it was a smaller space. It is. Um, but I'm happy to hear that they're expanding out a little bit. Yeah. yeah, so it's definitely it's definitely more comfortable to be in now. And you can and certainly because when they have things or with you know, when things go on sale, there's always a line. You know, there's mm-hmm. always yeah. a line of people just waiting. And now more people can kind of fit in the store, so that's that's nice. Are you involved in the third man record collectors group on Facebook? I am. I am a part of that group. Because uh, I had saw one of the admins, Nicholas Lynch, did a contest where he live Facebooked in the storefront, and that was the first time I'd actually seen it, like a walkthrough, essentially. Of it. Oh, yeah. And, and it seemed smaller than I expected it to be. It's really, yeah, it's like now it's kind of like three small rooms. So you walk in and you're in one room, and then there's kind of like a room connected, and then mm-hmm. another room connected. But yeah, it, it is, it's not a big space. But there's lots of stuff in it. You know, there's the recording booth, there's the photo booth, there's the the button machine, and then the little, you know, guitar mold machine. But then they have like a little reading nook where you can kind of look over the books and a listening, like a listening area. So they've, they've used it well, but it's not, but it's not huge. Like I think when you come, it's not, it won't be, if you have like local record stores, it it probably won't be as big as your local record store. Mm. I have to ask, have you ever had a jack sighting? Yes, multiple. You have? Yes. Okay. Please well, tell us. And so the rule in Nashville is, you know, there's several, there are lots of famous people that live here, but the rule in Nashville is that you can never get excited. So <laughs> okay. I saw... That's New York like, rules. Yes. That's also the rule in LA, which I do not follow at all. <laughs> well, and so I think that at this point, I think that I have, you know, because definitely the White Stripes is, is my favorite band and, you know, Jack is half of that. But I think the first time I saw him, it was at a flea market, and he was with his family. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even thought about approaching him with his family. But um, what was yeah. cool is that he was wearing that like cowhide coat that he has. Oh sure, and, ah, yeah, yeah. and people have just recently, somebody recently posted in that Third Man Records collector group about it. Like that coat's just a really cool coat. And I remember when I saw it at the flea market, I was with a friend, and she said, "I don't really want to meet him, but I do want to touch his coat." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I thought that was oh, that wow. was kind of funny because it. I mean, it's just a, a really interesting coat. And I think, and sometimes you'll see him drive into Third Man Records, or you'll see him on Franklin Pike, Ugh. which is essentially Third Man Records is just kind of right off. And you'll see like an old. You'll be like, oh, that's a really cool old restored classic truck. And then you'll be like, and I think Jack White is driving it. And he's easy to pick out. You know, he's he's tall yeah. and thin and pale, yeah. and he has. In the past, he's had, you know, long, kind of big, thick, curly black hair. So mm-hmm. he's not, you know, he's not hard to pick out. So we invited you on the show today, not only to talk about Nashville and Third Man Records and stuff, but we're talking about Get Behind Me Satan on this series of episodes. And we are to understand that you own one of the initial promo vinyl cuts of that album. I do. It's one of my favorite records. It was definitely Get Behind Me Satan was a special record to me anyway. But having the promo copy is extra special. I love Meg White. And as you guys know, oh, I guess it's the cover of the promo copy has Meg White in that kind of iconic stance of kind of what I would consider like old Hollywood glam with, you know, the, the big microphone. I'll hold it up to the to the screen, but it's just such a, I think it's such an amazing picture of her. And it's sort of like what we would maybe consider a little out of character for her too. Um, you know, the drum has Rita Hayworth on it. Mm-hmm. Of course, we yeah, know that yeah. a couple of those songs are about Rita. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just a cool picture. And then of course the back is cover art. I think that this picture may be in the release, the new release with Jack and the woman just sitting on the bench. Yeah. I don't know. But, I think that's in one of the inserts, but... But that Meg picture... Jack recreated that photo for the special release in 2015, and yes. I guess I had never known that that was even on the original release. Yep, there it is. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I brought everything, like, right to the space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, but I've never seen that photo on the front before. If you don't mind us asking, how did you come about the promo copy, or was that... Oh, it's a really... No, it's a really sweet story, and I always love to tell okay, it. Okay, please do. Yeah. I had kind of caught in the collecting bug. Like, I had I'd purchased several of the albums myself over time, and I had also gotten the Nesting Dolls when they first came out when Icky Thump was released, and, and a a lot of merchandise, I think, was released when Icky Thump came out that had kind of like spurred that on. But I just didn't ever think that I would own a promo copy at the time that I was, I think it was 2010 or 2000 and a, maybe it was 2012. The White Stripes had broken up. So it was after 2011. The White Stripes had broken up and it just, those promo copies were going on eBay for like sometimes even a thousand dollars. So that was just way, yeah. you know, out of my price range. And it, and it seems silly to have it for just one record. But I shared with my fiancé, Josh, like, if I I had just a dream collectible, that would be it. Because it has that great picture of Meg. And I play the drums, and I just, you know, I just love Meg White. And I just shared that with him. And so he, who has never done eBay, you know, (laughs) talks to a friend, sets up an eBay account, you know, finds a copy that's for sale in California through, like, a record it seemed like it was like a maybe a record store finds it and like negotiates and and gets it mailed and he's like I'm going to get the I'm going to give it to her for her birthday but he got it in June my birthday's in September and it, I think he maybe waited like a week and then he was like I'm too excited I have to give this to you but it was um it was one of the I mean it was like the best surprise and one of the best gifts I was like you know you could have asked me like, this could have been my engagement ring. Like, you could have asked me to marry you with this. But, um, and I took it to the, I took it to this. I was worried because I thought, you know, like, is this, I don't know if this is real. It was before I really was doing a lot on Discogs. And um, I took it to the store the next day 
or, or a couple of days later, um, because it was in the summer, and they actually got Ben Blackwell, and he came out, and he said, yeah, it's real. So that wow. was that was kind of cool, too. Wow. So, yeah. Yes, I ch- I, at the time, I didn't think, like, I told them the story, you know, that my, my boyfriend at the time had, you know, got it for me, and they were like, you know, we hope you keep him around. It's when somebody <laughs> indulges you in those those kind of collect, especially when you're collecting something that they're not as into as you are, that's yes. a, a pretty nice thing to do. So My wife uh, recently gave me a Jack White shelf that we can have in our bedroom. So I've been like, that. that's the kind of significant other understanding. Yes, that healthy level of understanding and enablement. Yes, I'm right, with yeah. you. But those right. are the people that you've got to really cling to. That's that's how I think you know you found the right one. Right. So. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and he, he eventually did propose since you said fiance earlier. So yes. Had, so that and happened. So that's so great. This is, so this is, he, we had talked about it like at one point, but it, it just never happened. And I thought, well, did he change his mind? We've been together for a long time. Maybe we'll just shack up forever. And then I don't know if he realized this, but it was actually on the anniversary of the White Stripes first show, Aww. which was, wow. you know, like July 14th. And um, he proposed on July 14th. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so I thought that that was really sweet, too. And I said, did you do this because it was the anniversary of the White Stripes forming? And he was like, oh, yeah, uh-huh. But I don't know that he really did. <laughs> wow. Uh, oh, yeah. well, that is really sweet. Oh, it my was God. really A sweet. A belated congratulations, then. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I've never actually seen or held one of these promo copies before. Is there anything else interesting about the uh, sleeve or you know it's like uh, what what else goes on there? like what's the sticker on the inside like on the record itself they're black vinyl i'll show you the uh-huh. stickers there's the you know the two hands touching mm-hmm. on one okay, cool cool and yeah. then on the other one it's the meg hand holding an apple uh, okay on the special edition it's it's like that too they have a track yes. listing and then yeah those are on the different discs yeah there's there's a difference in the track listing. The track listing is a little bit different on the promo copy. Um, and oh. I think that as somebody who is a diehard White Stripes fan, that didn't really upset me, but I know it upset a lot of other people. I think they felt like one song kind of led into the to the next song, and it, it just didn't flow as well. Hmm. I don't really notice that as much, And but I list, I'll actually listen to the to the promo copy, and of course I have the CD as well that I listen to. Yeah. But there's no run out. There's no, like, run-out etchings on the promo copies, which, you know, you would think that it would make sense for them to have it. And, of course, there are on the re-released ones. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's the sequencing difference? I think that it is Little Ghost has been moved. Oh. If Callie Durga was here, she could tell us in a minute. (laughs) Callie! If we could only Skype her in. I think that it's that little ghost has changed place and something else has been swapped. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. How do you feel about the album? Like, when it came out, did you feel about it a certain way then that time has changed? Or do you find your relative enjoyment of it somewhat consistent? Like, it was refreshing for me when this album came out. Like, they had just had, you know, all of this commercial success with Elephant, which really kind of made them, like, what I would consider more mainstream. So this, in a way, Mm -hmm. was kind of the second album that that everybody was going to be getting. Mm -hmm. To me, I always thought, like, gosh, this is an album of heartbreak on one hand and sort of in a little bit of like, I'm coping with this heartbreak by living in a fantasy 
on another hand, but then also some real jabs, like mm-hmm. like you said. Yeah. But I, what I also thought was really cool is that it seemed like it was a little bit of a return to the White Stripes roots. They all had different instruments. I mean, there's still guitar and, yeah. and drums, obviously, but there's a whole bevy of new instruments. We're partial to bringing up the marimba. And like Meg is playing the bongos <laughs> and like and she's on the tambourine with little ghosts yeah. and... And so, again, it's sort of like they're going back to being really raw, but with the different instruments. And I think there's an evolution in Meg's drumming a little bit, like where Hotel Yorba is really kind of based around that drum line, which isn't totally different, but which kind of deviates away from that just one and two and three and four and because it's just a little bit funkier. And so it's kind of interesting to see like that evolution, but also coupled with Mm -hmm. some of the interesting instruments. You know, Meg plays, I guess they're timpani drums i wish we would have gotten another meg track yeah. i really do I, I always bring up saint andrew is in the air or um, this battle is in the air is like the next closest we get but because it's just her but. Uh, it's it might be why we cling to rag and bone so much because she kind of talks throughout True. that one but or not um, or not <laughs> this has been lovely kate thank you so much absolutely thank you yeah thank you. seriously come back soon <laughs> yeah i mean come on um well i'm ready so i'm ready for when we do oh man thump, the i've discs. got i've got the peak i've got the meg pick disc and the, the mono. mono oh so that see now get behind me satan is paul's favorite album mickey thump is my favorite stripes album so uh that one is close to my heart and i missed the missed the boat on vault one i was a little too young to have sixty dollars of disposable income when it came out so yeah, I think I was spending it on probably Ariel at the time. Ramen. But, um, oh, okay. <laughs> Ramen noodles, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. jealous. Um, so thank you again so much for joining us. Um, you know, you belong to a lot of different groups. Do you want to – is there anything you want to plug? Any groups you want to plug out there, like, for different Jack White fandom stuff or – I think – I mean, I feel like all the groups that I'm a part of are phenomenal. I think that that's really the reason I stay on, like, social media is to – the Third Man Records Collector Group is great because I think if you've got friends there and you're looking for something, you will eventually find it. Someone will hook you up. You know, the Thinking Persons Jack White group is my favorite group. It's kind of just yeah. an extension of the little room, which is such a gem for anybody that's a longtime White Stripes fan. So, you know, I think I just think all those people, you know, Callie Durga is a great source of wisdom. Tom, Needham, Shane Devon, Ara Casey, all these wonderful people who, you know, step in and share knowledge, share music, share experiences. Yeah. It's just really nice. So I guess that's my plug. (laughs) (laughs) It's been great getting to know all of those groups. It's one of the reasons, again, why we started the show. And it's been really, really great getting to know them with wonderful people like yourself and Callie Durga. And we'll have to get Callie on the show. Um, You'll have to. That's, yeah. We certainly talk to her. She's got to come on. (laughs) She's essentially our our third podcaster because she gives us (laughs) most of the information that we get wrong. Um, Um. Kate, thank you so much. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna return to the episode here, but thank you so much for Absolutely. joining us. Yep, thank you so thank much. Thank you guys, this was great. Okay, have a nice night. Back to the episode. Bye. And that is gonna do us, James. We're gonna leave this episode on a cliffhanger well we're cliffhanging out here <laughs> yeah we're cliffhanging this album you know there's a lot to talk about here and so we're gonna break it into two parts but uh next week we will be back here on wednesday with part two but for now that is gonna do us thank you very much for listening uh we really appreciate it. by the way 
all the fantastic feedback we got on our last two episodes, Would You Fight For My Love, just got incredible feedback. And we're really, really, really happy that you all are uh, listening and enjoying the show. Yeah, totally. Uh, thank you guys so much for all of all of what you guys do. Yes. Make it worth doing. Indeed. In fact, it's what we're doing it for, really, is to talk to the fan community. So thank you. We've got a couple shout outs of some people that have been interacting with us on social media that we want to call out here. So we, we sort of divided these up into people who are sort of new to commenting and things on the podcast and then some people who are our regular listeners. We really much we really appreciate our first one here. We have Deborah Corona. Thank you, Deborah. Thanks, Deborah Corona. We'd like to thank Michael Cortese. Uh, thank you so much. Michael, thank you. We have Hannah Scudder. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Anna Newman. <laughs> thank you, Anna. You're great. And then our regulars, uh, people who are who are constantly giving us awesome feedback, Jeremy Riles. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Kelly Durga, as always. Kelly, we love hearing from you. It's great. Uh, Adrian King. Thank you, Adrian. Hey, and Andre Lyman, every week you're posting about us. Thank you. Love it. Thank you, Andre. We'd also like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the recording and production of our theme song, We Are the Third Men. We had a blast recording that, James. I think, you know, on one of these episodes, I think I'm going to, I think we're going to put in maybe some of the alt versions and some of the demos of that song because I know everyone's clamoring to hear it. (laughs) Put it as a B-side, Paul. (laughs) Yeah, thank you guys so much. The song is great. Uh, we'd also like to thank Susanna Roundtree for the intro and outro to our program. She adds a, an, an air of class. A special thanks to Susanna for all those funky robot noises that we had her do in the Would You Fight For My Love episode, yes. which she didn't bat an eye and just recorded. So <laughs> that's uh, it was reverb-tastic, and we love it. So thanks, Susanna. <laughs> yep. And thanks to our third woman this week. Yes, thank you very much. Also, if you want to contact us, as many of you have, um, please check out our Facebook group. We have uh, we have a very active and lively group, I'd say, uh, and it's uh, facebook.com slash thirdmen, so check that out. Yeah, you could tweet at us, at thirdmencast. Feel free to use the hashtag thirdmencast or the hashtag Carl Butterball. Yeah. Not, I'll be let, searching it. Let's get Carl Butterball trending. If we let's, can... let's get Butterball turkeys to take notice of us. Everybody tweet at Butterball turkeys that their mascot should now be Carl Butterball. You guys like him, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are, in fact, the only two people who like Carl Butterball. <laughs> Look, belligerent Santa's gone home. We know you guys don't like him. <laughs> We got we to gotta direct stop, please, uh, from everyone <laughs> about that character. Uh, if you want to uh, tumble at us, uh, we are on Tumblr. You can find us at thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. Yeah, you can go direct to the source uh, where we post all our episodes in our show notes at our WordPress site. Thethirdmen.wordpress.com. That's got pictures and show notes and all that stuff. We also put the pictures on the Facebook page, but that's neither here nor there. And then if you want to get in touch with us directly, if you have a comment or a question or a fact you'd like us to smell or anything like that, you can reach out to us at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and feel free to search us on uh, YouTube or wherever, whatever podcatcher you're using. We try to do the YouTube visualizers, and by we, I mean me, and I've been trying to do them, but... Uh, they're a little slow to get out, and I'm sorry about that. Yeah, oh, that's all right. They're they're wonderful. We put a little few Easter eggs in there, and that's cool. Um, you can please, if you're listening to the show, rate, review, subscribe. It really helps us get the word out and improves our ratings and things. We got a really nice 
good chunk of feedback, particularly on the last set of sort of five episodes or so, and it's it's been improving our ratings. So that's really good. Uh, keep it coming, guys, please, because uh, yeah, we want to keep be able to continue to make these shows for you, and it really helps us to know that more of you are listening and that we can attract a wider audience of Jack White fans. Yeah, um, and I think that's gonna do it. Paul. Yeah, man. Until next Wednesday, James. Uh, I think I'm gonna be looking for a home. Yeah, I'll be looking for a home, too, I think. <laughs> See you then. Bye. Don't do that. Stop it. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. I just typed in on fabulous white strips. <laughs> Hold on. What's what's Kafka? Kafka? No, I think I found some Russian website. Yeah, Kafka is definitely a Russian poet. Uh, he wrote Metamorphosis. What are you into, James? There's some weird oh, sex God. stuff in that. Stop. <laughs> Hope you're into bug vor. <laughs> How did you get from unfabulous to Kafka? Don't, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> Paul, I think I'm looking at somebody's webcam. Paul, help me. <laughs> He's turning into a cockroach. Dear God. There's nothing un- unfabulous in, in this. I. Oh, hold on. Hold on, I've found a hole that I want to live in for a minute. It's a, Is it another Kafka hole? Don't no, live in a, those. It's a live journal about after the Nickelodeon Awards after party, uh, which has. Hold on. Oh no. Oh balls. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> we belong together by work. <laughs>